Welcome to Sit and Listen, a production of Science in the News. We're a graduate student-run organization at Harvard University that catalyzes discussion between scientists and other experts and enthusiasts. I'm Amy Gilson, a producer of Sit and Listen and also a graduate student. I'm studying how proteins evolve using computer simulations, data analysis, and experiments in bacteria. Today, we are continuing with part two of our episode on animal experimentation. If you haven't listened to part one, you can go back and listen to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page if you just look up Sit and Listen. But part two will still make sense if you just keep listening to it now. Before we get started, let's just go around and introduce ourselves again. Hey, me. My name is Michelle Sohail, and I'm a PhD candidate in systems biology at Harvard. My research focuses on studying natural selection in modern humans. And my name is Michelle Frank, and I'm a PhD candidate in neuroscience here at Harvard. My research is focused on the auditory system, and over the course of my scientific career so far, I've worked with fruit flies, worms, fish, mice, and humans. Hi, I'm Alexandra Schnell, and I just started my graduate work in immunology, and I'll be working on autoimmune diseases using mouse models. As a neuroscientist who works with fruit flies, one of the most common questions I'm asked is, wait, fruit flies have brains? Luckily for me, they do have brains. Confusion about what simple model organisms like fruit flies and worms can teach us about pressing biomedical problems is also shared by more than a few politicians. Some of these pet projects, they really don't make a whole lot of sense. And sometimes these dollars, they go to projects having little or nothing to do with the public good. Things like fruit fly research in Paris, France. I kid you not. That quote, of course, is from Sarah Palin. And while her umbrage at fruit fly research might seem a bit extreme, skepticism about the use of simple model systems in biomedical research is understandable. At first glance, human beings and insects seem to have very little in common with each other. For one thing, humans don't have wings. More significantly, fruit flies lack a spinal cord. They have multifaceted compound eyes. They don't even have blood, although they do have a different kind of circulating fluid. So what on earth can fruit flies teach us about human health? As it turns out, rather a lot. Roughly half of the human genome is shared with our insect cousin. And, as that number might suggest, many core aspects of biology are indeed shared between humans and fruit flies. Much of what we know about genetics was originally discovered in Drosophila, and studies in the fly have also had a major impact on our understanding of how a fertilized egg develops into an adult animal. Scientists today are also using Drosophila to model many human diseases, including cancer, autism, and Alzheimer's disease. That's really weird, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most often, these uh, disease models in flies work when scientists either get rid of a gene or um, add in a human gene and see how it affects the physiology or the behavior of fruit flies. Or we can also just, if we identify um, some kind of mutation or gene that's really important in causing cancer, autism, or any of these other diseases, we can use fruit flies to study what that, what that protein or what that gene does. These studies in general can have real consequences for human health. Think, for example, about your circadian clock, your body's internal timekeeping mechanism. Your circadian clock might prevent you from sleeping in on weekends if you're used to waking up early. And if you've ever traveled to a distant time zone, you can thank your circadian clock for the delightful effects of jet lag. Disruptions in circadian rhythms have also been linked to an increased risk for cancer and a poorer prognosis for patients with the disease. 
There's hope, then, that a better understanding of the body's circadian rhythms can lead to new anti-cancer therapies, as well as treatments for insomnia and jet lag. And here's where fruit flies come in. Like humans, fruit flies have a circadian clock, as do plants, fungi, and even many bacteria. Like humans, fruit flies sleep, and their sleep patterns are determined by their circadian rhythms. Like humans, fruit flies get jet lag if you suddenly start turning the lights on and off a few hours earlier or later than they're used to. And like humans, fruit flies keep track of the time of day with a molecular clock that shares many of its fundamental elements with the molecular clock in humans. By the mid-20th century, scientists could list numerous ways that organisms rely on biological clocks. Some animals are nocturnal and others are diurnal, and they maintain these rhythms even in laboratories where all environmental cues have been wiped away. As late as the 1970s, though, biologists had very little idea how any of this worked. As Jonathan Weiner describes in his book, Time, Love, Memory, the problem seemed so intractable in the mid-1900s that one botanist insisted the field would need another Newton to find the solution. In 1971, two years after that challenge was issued, Ronald Konopka and Seymour Benzer identified the first component of the molecular clock in Drosophila, a gene they called period. In time, researchers were able to use this knowledge about the period gene in a fly to identify period genes in humans and mice. Gradually, work in several species has helped to identify even more components of this molecular timepiece. Nearly all of the genes known to be key regulators of the circadian clock were first identified in flies. Now, when I say that the period gene exists in both flies and humans, I don't mean that you can find identical chunks of period DNA coiled into the genomes of both Homo sapiens and Drosophila melanogaster. What I mean is that both fruit flies and humans have a segment of DNA that looks quite similar, and the segment of DNA serves as a blueprint for a protein that does similar things in both flies and humans. Scientists say that these genes, these bits of similar genetic material, are conserved between humans and flies. As organisms evolve, their genomes diverge, their differences expand, and they develop wildly different traits. Still, some traits are sufficiently important to the survival of the organism that they deviate very little over time, because even small variations in these core traits generally lead to major defects or death. In biology, we say that these core traits are conserved between species and across evolutionary time. That isn't to say there isn't wiggle room. Mammals have three period genes, for instance, while flies only have one. Still, we know that there are three period genes, because identifying that single gene in Drosophila told researchers what to look for in humans. Konopka and Benzer were able to identify the period gene in the first place, because working with flies allowed them to look at hundreds of mutant animals until they identified some with timekeeping defects. Performing a similar experiment with mice or humans would have been prohibitively expensive, time-consuming, and inhumane. So maybe mice weren't the best system for identifying circadian genes and aren't ideal for experiments that require scientists to look at hundreds and hundreds of mutant animals. But there are also many things we can study in mice that just can't be studied in fruit flies. For example, I study the immune system, which is key to human health. You know how if you get chickenpox once, you generally don't get it again? That's because your immune system has adapted to recognize the chickenpox virus. But the way Drosophila's immune system adapts is really different from ours and from other mammals. The model I use is Mus musculus, the house mouse. As different as we appear from mice, humans and mice actually share around 95% of all genes and get most of the same diseases. And like Drosophila, mice are re relatively small and easy to keep in lab. 
When you throw in all of the many mouse-specific technologies people have developed over past years, it's not hard to understand why mice are the most commonly used model to study human disease. William Castle, the scientist Michelle already talked about in part one, put C.C. Little, a sophomore at Harvard at, at the time, in charge of his mouse colonies. Little was hooked and turned his collection of pet fancier mice into genetically identical strains of lab mice through breeding. He did this for many of the same reasons other scientists generated inbred strains in Drosophila. Reducing genetic variation allows for the comparison of experimental results across different animals and labs. Years later, in 2002, the mouse became the third animal and the first mammal to have its entire genome sequenced. This finding made it possible for researchers to plan genetic manipulations in mice for the first time, and scientists have been using mice for intensive genetic studies ever since. So Alex, you mentioned you work on the immune system in mice. What exactly are you doing? I work on a mouse model for type 1 diabetes, the type of diabetes generally diagnosed in kids and thought to be inherited. In contrast, type 2 diabetes is generally diagnosed later in life and is associated with ob obesity. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease, which means that it's caused when the immune system attacks and kills cells of its own body. In type 1 diabetes, the immune system attacks the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas. Once the immune system has killed these cells, the person will develop diabetes. Right now, the best mouse model for type 1 diabetes, and actually one of the best mouse models for any human disease, is the non-obese diabetic strain of mice, also known as NOD. These mice are as well are a well-established model and are easily available fr from, from suppliers all over the world. At the Jackson Lab in the USA, which is actually founded by CC Little, NOD mice cost around $40 per mouse and can be delivered in a few days. The strength of the NOD mouse model is its many similarities to human type 1 diabetes. As in humans, NOD mice spontaneously develop type 1 diabetes. NOD mice generally develop type 1 diabetes when they're young adults, around 12 weeks old. In humans, the average age of onset is closer to 14 years. But of course, humans live substantially longer than mice. In fact, it's actually a very unique feature that this mouse model develops type 1 diabetes spontaneously. Many other mouse models of human diseases require a treatment for the mice to become sick. The NOD mouse model for type 1 diabetes shares other key traits with human type 1 diabetes. Both are caused by the similar genetic mutations, suggesting that the cause of the disease is the same in both mice and humans. Researchers can use the mouse model to study many questions related to type 1 diabetes. For example, we can study the development of type 1 diabetes using younger mice that haven't yet developed disease. But we can also study the established disease by using only mice that are already sick. Sick mice can easily be identified me by measuring urine or blood glucose levels. Can you walk us through what some of your research looks like? Sure. Since I'm sure most of you have never performed experiments with lab mice, I will start all the way at the beginning. In order to get to the mice in the morning, you first have to enter the mouse facility, which is actually quite a procedure. The mice used for our experiments are supposed to be held in, a in facilities that are as clean as possible in order to limit uncontrolled environmental factors that could unknowingly influence out the outcome of experiments. This means that everyone entering needs to change their street clothes into clean scrubs and put on shoe and hair covers. Next, you need to go through an air shower which is basically a small room in which air is blown at you for a few seconds. This helps clear off dust and dirt particles and prevents debris from getting into the clean facility. Once you enter, you go to the room that belongs to your lab and pick out the cage with the mice you are planning to use for this experiment. When working with NOD mice, 
It's usually a good idea to check whether a mouse is diabetic before using it for the experiment. This can be done in two ways, measuring the glucose level in the blood or in the pee. To measure the blood levels, you take a mouse out of its cage and place a small cut on its tail using a razor blade. This is actually pretty similar to the procedure performed with humans at the doctor when a finger is poked and a with a small needle. You can then measure the glucose levels in a drop of blood using a normal bl blood glucose meter. You can actually use the same glucose meter that's also used for humans. If you want to measure the glucose level of the pee, a mouse is actually picked up um, that the belly is facing up. And this might sound funny, but you can actually <laughs> tickle the, the belly so that the mouse starts peeing. And then you can use that pee to measure the glucose level. And um, once you've determined the health status of the mouse, you can decide whether you want to use the mouse for the experiment or not. Or not. Then there are different experiments that are performed with the NOD mice. Some experiments involve some kind of treatment, such as injecting reagents into the body cavity. Usually mice are then sacrificed for analysis a few days after the treatment. Other experiments require the mice to be sacrificed immediately. Lab mice are generally euthanized using CO2. So do the kinds of things you discover in these NOD mice always apply to humans? No, not necessarily. Even though humans and mice are very similar, they are still very different as well. I don't know of any prominent cases where findings in NOD mice didn't apply to humans, but a famous example for a difference between animals and humans with tremendous consequences is the drug thalidomide. Thalidomide used to be prescribed to pregnant women to treat morning sickness. It was pulled from markets in the early 60s about four years after it was introduced because it caused birth defects. This causes some soul searching about why these tr terrible effects hadn't been caught with animal studies. A paper from the 60s we found on the subject described how some, but not all, studies done on the effects of thalidomide on pregnant mice, rats and rabbits found an association between the drug and birth defects. The birth defects were the most common and severe in rabbits. In rats and mice, however, even though over 20 studies were done, less than half of those found a significant link between thalidomide and birth defects. More surprisingly, no connection to birth defects had been observed in primate studies to that date. At least at the time the study was published, why humans and these animals respond so differently was unknown and therefore would have been hard to predict based on prior, prior knowledge. So findings that are made in mice should still ha be confirmed in humans and human tissue samples. The good news is that by the time you found something in mice, you know exactly what to look for in humans. In the last few years, researchers have also developed a new strategy to reduce differences between mice and humans, something called humanized mice. Like the mouse in Ratatouille? Not quite. Humanized mice carry functioning human cells, so researchers can perform experiments on human cells without needing to do experiments in humans. So actually what happens is that you perform a bone marrow transplant on mice. So you basically introduce human bone marrow into mice. And that actually means that the mouse will have a human immune system and not a mouse immune system anymore. It's a pretty great system because it means that we can do even more to evaluate possible drug treatments before giving, giving them to human patients. But the mice can't talk or cook. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of humanizing animals can apply in other ways too, especially in acknowledging the fact that animals can also feel things like pain and distress. As Michelle mentioned earlier, animal sentience hasn't always been taken as a given, but anti-cruelty laws governing the treatment of lab animals began popping up in Europe and some states in the U.S. in the 1800s. It wasn't until the mid-20th century, however, that the federal government passed its first law regulating the use of research animals. 
The impetus for this new legislation came from an unlikely source, an article in Sports Illustrated. In 1965 and 66, both Sports Illustrated and Life magazines published widely circulated reports of a particularly nasty way of procuring research animals, stealing household pets. Mm -hmm. The public outcry that followed spurred the passage of a bill that would later be known as the Animal Welfare Act. Initially, the scope of this law was quite limited. It required both laboratories with animal facilities and animal dealers to register with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA but it left the treatment of animals within research facilities to the discretion of researchers. Over time, this oversight was gradually expanded, and by 1970, the USDA was also given the authority to exercise at least some control over the treatment of laboratory animals within research facilities. The number of species covered by the Animal Welfare Act has also been extended over time. The initial formulation of the act covered only six of the most commonly used research animals, dogs, cats, monkeys, guinea pigs, hamsters, and rabbits. I noticed you didn't mention mice or rats in that list. Are they included now? No. It's surprising, isn't it? And, in fact, mice and rats have always been and are still excluded from the Animal Welfare Act, even though it now covers virtually all other vertebrate species used for biomedical research. David Favre, an expert on animal law at the Michigan State College of Law, told me that the emission was primarily caused by lobbying efforts from researchers. There have been a number of lawsuits over the years trying to get the USDA to drop these loopholes, but so far none of them have stuck. Most of the time, though, mice and rats are still protected by other regulations. And today, animal research is governed by a number of federal, state, and local agencies, in addition to the USDA. Many major research institutions around the world are also accredited by ALAC International, a private nonprofit agency dedicated to the humane treatment of laboratory animals. In general, however, all of these regulations apply exclusively to vertebrate species, and very little, if any, oversight applies to research on invertebrate animals. For most institutions today, including academic and nonprofit research institutions, as well as for profit pharmaceutical companies, The primary oversight for animal research on vertebrate species comes in the form of an Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee, colloquially, colloquially known as an IACUC. IACUCs were formally established by an amendment to the Animal Welfare Act in 1986. Each research institution has its own IACUC, which is appointed by the institution's CEO. This committee is required to have at least three members, including a researcher who works with animals, a veterinarian, and a community member who isn't affiliated with that institution. Before conducting any research on vertebrate animals, researchers must submit detailed proposals to the IACUC for approval. Alex, as a grad student working with mice, what kind of trainings or proposals do you have to submit to work with the mice? Yeah, this is actually interesting to me too. Since I come from Germany and I have experienced a very different set of regulations in Europe and in the US. In Germany and elsewhere in Europe, everyone who carries out experiments with animals is required to pass a 40-hour long course from the Federation of Laboratory Animal Science Associations, also known as FILASA. This course includes a theoretical part covering a broad range of topics, from the biology of lab animals to the ethics and laws concerning the use of lab animals. In addition, it includes a practical part, during which every participant has to conduct the most common techniques used in animal research on a living animal in order to prove that they know how to correctly perform the techniques. It is pretty involved. I have friends who have failed this course the first time around. In contrast, in the US, the required training only includes the theoretical part, which you can usually complete online. This training includes information on animal welfare regulations and basic IACUC policies and standards. Most of the hands-on training comes informally from people in the lab. 
As for working with the IACUC itself, most of the research proposals submitted to the committee are written by the faculty, so graduate students rarely have any direct interactions with IACUC. The criteria IACUCs use for evaluating research proposals are extremely complex. They have separate recommendations for individual species tailored to the many kinds of research biomedical scientists do. But in their simplest form, they can be reduced to the three R's, reduction, replacement, refinement. In other words, wherever possible, researchers should strive to reduce the number of animals they use, replace animals with simpler organisms or non-animal research methods, and refine research proposals, refine research procedures to reduce pain and suffering of animals as much as possible. Wait, can flies feel pain? That's a tricky one. I think it's clear that flies don't experience pain as intensely as you or I, or even as intensely as a mouse. The whole concept of replace in the three R's is predicated on the idea that organisms have different levels of sentience, and therefore different levels of pain and suffering. As for whether flies feel pain, like I said, it's tricky and it's actually debated in the field. They definitely have nociceptors, which are the sensors for detecting painful events. But pain itself is subjective. In theory, you could respond to events without experiencing the wrenching sensation of hurt that typifies a painful experience. In fact, there are some human disorders like this, generally termed congenital insensitivity to pain. But with people, we can identify how painful something is by asking. If you go to the hospital after an injury, they'll often ask you to rate your level of pain on a scale of 1 to 10. Obviously, we can't do that with animals, so we usually identify pain behaviorally. If a mouse or a dog hurts its foot, it will start limping. When they experience something painful, they'll squeal or yelp. Flies don't do any of that. You can take off their legs, their wings, their entire abdomen, and they'll keep on behaving as if nothing ever happened. That doesn't mean that you, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't feel pain, and I'm certainly not encouraging anyone to try ripping flies in half or taking off their legs, but it does limit our ability to Except come to Except for the a, sake of science. <laughs> Except for the sake of science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it does limit our ability to come to a conclusion about whether they can or can't feel pain. Still, I find it surprising that there's no regulation governing the treatment of invertebrate research specimens, at least not in this country. Well, I do think that flies and other simple organisms have at least some kind of sentience and therefore deserve some moral consideration. It seems to be pretty hard to hurt them, as I just explained. But there are other invertebrates that are very intelligent. Octopuses, for example, can learn, navigate, and use tools. They play, and they hide, and they can escape from aquaria and research labs. I find it hard to believe that they're any less deserving of moral consideration than fish, but research on fish is regulated, and research on octopuses isn't. Researchers in, researchers in this country generally aren't even required to use anesthesia if they're performing a surgery on an octopus. Octopuses were recently added to the list of protected research animals in the EU, though, so it's possible that the laws will change in this country, too. The three R's have been getting wider purchase in the U.S. recently. And from what I read, it seems to be taking hold in China, too, where animal experimentation is growing rapidly. Strikingly, however, there aren't any big debates taking place right now about eliminating animal experimentation altogether. As far as I'm concerned, eliminating animal experimentation, at least the kinds that we've been focusing on where animals are basically used as model human beings, would be good. As Alex discussed, there are very real shortcomings to animal models of human disease. They can be expensive, slow, worst of all, inaccurate. So when we started working on this episode, I thought I'd survey the new methods that might replace animals in certain contexts and try to estimate how many animals could eventually be replaced by these methods. 
that did not work out the way I thought it would. <laughs> there are so many contexts in which animals are involved in research, and many of the methods held up as alternatives to animal experimentation are really complements and not replacements at all. Really, working on this episode has only made me more convinced that we probably won't ever be able to fully find replacements for animal experimentation and research. Bodies are too fully interconnected. One day we might be able to grow a mouse body intact, but without sentience, without a, you know, feelings. But that's already far, really far, and that's already really far in the future. But even with such mice, there are still some studies you'll just need to do in a regular mouse model. For example, there are mouse models of PTSD, which would be pretty hard to work on without mice that can feel fear or pain. But there are some examples where new laboratory techniques are being able to replace animals. For example, engineering tissues and growing them in the lab can replace animals. EpiSkin is one such example of engineered tissue. It's a skin model that actually does better than tests on mouse skin at predicting what materials might be corrosive and irritating to human skin. We're not quite at growing a whole pancreas or liver yet, but my sister actually considered working on a diagnostic tool along these lines as part of her PhD research. Basically, she would have grown tissues from many different human organs and then connected them in an artificial circulatory system. There's a similar technique that researchers have started using in neuroscience too. In essence, we can take a small number of someone's cells, say a bit of skin or a bit of blood, and turn them into brain cells. One hope is that this technique might let us study psychiatric diseases by growing brain tissue out of small samples from patients with neurological disorders like schizophrenia or ALS. Taking even a small sample from someone's actual brain is extremely risky and extremely invasive and a lot, a lot harder for the patients than just drawing a little bit of blood, for example. The crux of this technique lies in something called induced pluripotent stem cells. Pluripotent stem cells are cells that can be transformed into many different kinds of cells, and they're induced because we induce regular cells to turn into pluripotent stem cells. In theory, we can use this technology to generate all kinds of cells or organ structures from blood samples or skin cells. For the time being, though, we're a long way off from being able to make functional organs or to grow a brain in a dish. Still, it's one of the most promising systems we have for studying human brains without actually studying human brains. <laughs> there are also interesting methods that are changing how some people are thinking about animal research, at least. Finding ways to model humans on animals. Did you know that when somebody dies after contracting a bacterial infection, it's generally their own body's response to the bacteria that ends up being lethal, not the bacteria themselves? So let's say you're a biologist, like H. Shaw Warren over at Harvard Medical School, who'd like to study sepsis, this dangerous response our bodies have to bacterial infection. If you turn to mice as models for humans, you'll find that the onset of sepsis happens much later than it does in humans. This difference makes mice bad models for studying sepsis in humans. Some scientists have approached the problem by trying to make mouse respond more like humans in this case. But it sounds like if sepsis happened later in humans, that would actually be a good thing, right? Right. So trying to make the human immune system act more like the mouse's is the approach Warren is taking to this problem. He argues that instead of spending time and money to make mice more like humans, to humanize the mice, a more efficient approach might be to find ways to temporarily reprogram an affected human's immune system to respond more like a mouse's. To really run with this idea, Warren is currently heading up a program called Species-Inspired Research Innovative Treatments. I like that. 
I read pretty regularly about engineers mimicking biology to make new materials, super strong fibers based on spider webs, super sticky materials based on the physics of how geckos' feet are so sticky. And I've never thought of biomimicking to make new therapeutics. Yeah, I'm also really taken by the inversion of the whole system we've been thinking of, trying to make humans model mice rather than the other way around. But you're not seriously proposing this a way of decreasing the amount of animal experimentation. Warren and others who take this approach are going to be doing tons of animal experimentation in order to understand their biology well enough that they can come up with methods to import it into humans. And let's say they come up with a new therapeutic based on how mice avoid sepsis. It's still not going to be given to humans directly. They're going to have to find some way of testing it in animals, no? Yeah, as far as I can see, you're totally right about this. The approach is an alternative to trying to force mice to be more similar to humans, but not an alternative to animal experimentation. Rather than going the direction of phasing out animal models, I think science is really going in the direction of tighter hybrids between animals and humans. Currently, cancer drugs are tested in several well-established human cell lines propagated in the lab outside of any animals. Personalized treatment for cancer right now might look like sequencing some part of a tumor's DNA to find mutations, and then providing treatments that are typically effective for cancers with these mutations. But remember how Rebecca was talking about injecting tumor cells into mice? Imagine that when a person has cancer, a sample of their tumor could first be grown up in several mice who then receive cancer treatments. The patient would then only receive the treatments that worked well on their cancer in the mouse. The humanized mouse, Alex mentioned, is an advance in making this line of treatment look even more exciting to scientists because the human immune system is an important part of how our bodies respond to cancer. My friends working in cancer really see cancer research and therapy moving in this direction. Other technologies will make it easier to genetically manipulate animals, making it faster, cheaper, and more accurate to use them as models of human disease. For example, newly developed CRISPR technology allows the targeted genetic alteration of almost any animal. In fact, a research article published in 2014 reported the birth of the first monkeys with customized mutations. In the future, this technology could mean that many human diseases will be modeled in monkeys rather than in mice, since monkeys are biologically and genetically much more similar to humans than are mice. However, those biological similarities also raise an ethical problem for working with monkeys. And even though technology will make these kinds of experiments easier and easier, I think it will be very important to keep monkey experiments to the smallest possible level. On the other hand, I'm really interested in seeing how animal experimentation, especially on primates, develops in China, where many American and European companies are outsourcing their animal testing. Just like outsourcing of manufacturing, part of the draw is lower expense of carrying out testing there. The quality of life for animals in the testing facilities is also going to be increasing over the next few years. They recently sent national guidelines for the care of laboratory animals. At the same time, as the US and Europe cooled down research on primates, especially great apes, China is starting to be the scientific hotspot for researchers who still want to keep working on these non-human animals and avoid the complex political climate that surrounds research outside of China. Back when George W. Bush was president, he banned federal funding for research on newly created embryonic stem cell lines because of moral opposition to destroying embryos. Many scientists did not share this ethical concern, but furthermore argued that the ban wouldn't even stop embryonic stem cell research. It would just damage American research by pushing it outside of the US. While the debate over primate research has not reached the same tenor, I saw several articles and comments voicing the same concern while working on this episode. 
Despite these potential trends, there are good reasons to think that we can limit animal research here without actually slowing down U.S. scientists. In 2011, the National Academy of Science released a report on the use of chimpanzees in biomedical research. The report found that advances in non-chimpanzee research has rendered continued work with chimpanzees unnecessary in almost all cases. In the future, maybe the development of non-primate or even non-animal models will mean that we can substantially reduce the number of primates or animals used in research without damaging U.S. scientists or getting in the way of important biomedical research goals. It's not clear that regulators, at least in this country, will allow primate research to expand with the technology, given the ethical concerns. Definitely. It will be interesting to see how these laws will change with new technologies being developed. As we discussed, a lot of the regulations and standards for the ethical use of animals and research has emerged from widespread movements and public discourse, like the animal rights movement or people's desire to protect their pets. And the debate isn't over. As new technologies emerge and the landscape of biomedical research shifts, we'll need to continue reevaluating the moral and legal rules that govern animal research. So if you have an opinion, share it. Cast a ballot, write to your representative, and of course, leave us a comment. We <laughs> always love to hear what you think. Soon we will be back with more on the possible reproducibility crisis going on in science research now, oceans, urban planning, and climate change, and many more. In the me meantime, we want to hear your thoughts on science and animals and your suggestions for the podcast. Email us at sitnpodcast at gmail.com or tweet at sitnboston. If you like today's show, definitely subscribe on iTunes or leave us a review. Positive reviews help others find our podcast and we're really grateful for any feedback you share with us. The SITN blog and this episode's show notes can be found at our website, sitn.hms.harvard.edu. Until next time. Hamsters dish local brains and allow unnecessary geckos to cook. Ratatouille? Share it.